You're listening to Louisiana Considered here on WWNO and WRKF. I'm Patrick Madden. On the show today, a new exhibit on the 1955 murder of Emmett Till. And we'll also be catching up on the week's politics with Stephanie Grace. But first, we're going to start the show talking about a big investigation that launched this week. For years, low-income residents of New Orleans have said the state's road home program paid them less to rebuild their homes compared to wealthier residents. A new investigation from WWL-TV, the Times-Picayune advocate, and ProPublica has produced a groundbreaking analysis of more than 92,000 rebuilding grants and found that, yes, these residents were right. As the investigation states, road home shortchanged people in poor neighborhoods while giving those in wealthy neighborhoods more of what they needed. Joining us to talk about uh, their series, we have two of the reporters from the project, investigative reporter David Hammer of WWL-TV and Jeff Adelson from the Times-Picayune Advocate. And we'll mention the other two reporters who worked on this, Rich Webster from Times-Picayune and Sophie Chow from ProPublica. David and Jeff, thank you guys for being here today. Thanks for having us. And we're also going to bring in our Friday co-host, Stephanie Grace, editorial page director, columnist for the Times, Picayune, New Orleans advocate. Stephanie, thank you for being here. Of course. Uh, David, let's start with you because you have been reporting on this and we're here for Katrina. I mean, you've you've been covering this issue for a long time. Give us the context about the, the road home program you know, the, the what your investigation and found and, and just the overall context for this. Yeah, Patrick, thanks for having us on. I um, started working on covering the Road Home program in late 2006, right after it launched. I was actually at the Times-Picayune at the time. And the Road Home was the largest housing recovery program in U.S. history at the time and still is. Uh, it started out and they didn't have enough money. Uh, The state of Louisiana didn't get enough money from uh, Congress to launch the program right away. So it didn't get going until late 2006. And when it did finally start, it had $7.5 billion. Uh, It ended up being over a $10 billion program. They were trying to help rebuild uh, several, you know, there were 300,000 housing units destroyed or damaged by hurricanes Katrina and Rita, and they were trying to cover the whole state with this program. And it had a lot of problems from the get-go. There were, uh, it was described as, uh, by Walter Leger, one of the members of the Louisiana Recovery Authority, as trying to build a ship that was already sailing. They were really uh, trying to put this program together without any um, roadmap. And So they had some hiccups and they had some problems. And one of the earliest things that we heard about was that the use of pre-storm value, the lesser of pre-storm value or the cost of damage to establish how to calculate each person's grant was going to leave people with lower valued homes in a more difficult position. If the cost of damage and rebuilding exceeded their pre-storm value, they were going to get less than somebody who lived in a a wealthier neighborhood. And we heard about that, and there was a lawsuit in 2008 that alleged discrimination that ended up being settled out of court years later. Um, And so we, we knew about this, and we reported about it, but it was never anything that we could clearly establish uh, until we could get data. And I started 
asking for that data over 10 years ago, trying to get detailed data on what each grant recipient received, what each person who rebuilt their house received, and how much they got in insurance, and uh, kept being told that it was a privacy issue. And But luckily, uh, ProPublica showed an interest in this. We combined with the Times-Picayune, and Jeff really spearheaded the, the um, effort to get that data, and that was crucial, and that's what we got this year. And, and let's bring in... Uh, a- Jeff Adelson right now. Jeff, talk about the the data component, about what what you were getting for this analysis and, and what you were able to show. Sure. So so by the end of the process, we actually were able to get uh, data on every, as uh, David was saying, every road home grant that was uh, given throughout the course of the program. Um, it's about 130,000 grants, including the rebuilding and the uh, the relocation grants. Um, and of those, uh, we were able to analyze all of the ones that uh, had sort of valid data. There were lots of uh, issues with the data in this um, in this database. And what we found was that in New Orleans, uh, which is the largest uh, area that had uh, rebuilding grants, um, rebuilding grant, those who were rebuilding in the wealthiest neighborhoods had about 88% of their, 80% of their costs covered through the road home program, insurance, or FEMA funding. Uh, meanwhile, if you look at the poorest neighborhoods, uh, only about 70% of the grants uh, or of of the, the cost of rebuilding the home uh, would have been funded from those sources, um, and what that meant essentially was that the um, the uh, if you lived in a poor neighborhood, you got uh, roughly uh, eighteen thousand dollars less than you would have gotten if you got the same type, the same rate of compensation in one of those wealthiest neighborhoods. Now that's more than a year's salary in those neighborhoods. So that has a really significant impact on how well people were able to rebuild. And as a lot of people, uh, David and, and Rich talked to in the course of the story said, you know, that continues uh, to play out to this day in how you see wealthier uh, and whiter areas of the city uh, rebuilding compared to poorer and less white white areas. Um, we found the same uh, uh pattern as well uh, statewide. So this wasn't just a New Orleans problem. And it's interesting because, of course, it costs the same to rebuild whether you are in a wealthier neighborhood or a less wealthy neighborhood. So, you know, it, it it's, it's and we knew that. I have to say, I have to ask David because I was across the newsroom from you all those years ago and we talked about this. Like we, we thought it was unfair. The people who filed this lawsuit made a good case it was settled, but the state did change its policy, which seemed to be something of an admission that, you know, of un- of unfairness. So what I'm wondering is, you know, what did you learn all these years later that you did not know back then or that you did not suspect back then? Well, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head with that question, Stephanie, because one of the things that Jeff just pointed out in that description of 80% covered in the wealthier neighborhoods and 70% covered in the poorer neighborhoods, that 70% included 
the grant that they added to try to help the poorest people, that only got them up to the 70% level. If you oh. had not had that, which was added on to try to address this problem, those folks would have been in the more in the 50% range. So their effort to make the program better for lower income people only uh, addressed part of the problem. So that was a big lesson learned. And the other thing that was really kind of a white whale for me in trying to chase this down over all these years was to try to figure out where did this idea of pre-storm value even come from? Because we knew that this was something that hadn't been done before and then was scrapped by the Federal Housing and Urban Development Department afterwards. So why did they do it here and whose idea was it? And so I was finally able to chase that down in this process and figure out that it was it was born of pol partisan politics. It was uh, it was based on this idea from the Republican-controlled Congress at the time in 2006 and the Republican-controlled White House that they wanted to limit the amount of federal taxpayer money that was going down to uh, the Gulf Coast for rebuilding, particularly to Louisiana, which was a Democratic-controlled state with Governor Kathleen Blanco. And, uh, and, and the effort was to try to get more money and the, and the Congress wanted to limit that. And that's where the idea of pre-storm value mm -hmm. to limit uh, any kind of funding right. to what the value of the home was prior to the storm. And, and know, that's where that came in. And the context of the time, if you remember, was there was a lot of suspicion that there would be fraud, that people would try to get something that they weren't due. And, you know, this was a really controversial idea that at the time to pay people for uninsured losses, because I think the kind of idea that, you know, the ideological idea that you're talking about is if people didn't have insurance, well, too bad. It's kind of a personal responsibility thing. And this really, you know, was a different way of looking at it. They were talking about rebuilding, you know, you had to rebuild the whole community. So right. therefore you had to help people even if they did have uninsured losses. Well, keep in mind that uh, there was a penalty of 30% for anybody who didn't have insurance. The mm. issue was not so much people not having insurance, and, and Jeff can talk about this in terms of the data bearing this out. It wasn't so much of people not having insurance. It was people having under uh, being underinsured under because they were told, particularly with flood insurance, because flood mm -hmm. insurance was cheap, but it was something that was um, basically, people were told for all these years, you're behind the levy system, you don't need it, and uh, and you only have to have it up to the point of your mortgage. So as people paid that down, they didn't have enough, uh, they didn't build up that coverage as the, as the value of their homes ri uh, was rising. And again, you're listening to Louisiana Considered here on WWNO and WRKF. I'm Patrick Madden, and we're speaking with uh, reporters uh, who worked on a big investigative project, David David Hammer of WWL-TV, Jeff Adelson from the Times-Picayune Advocate. Their investigation with ProPublica looks at uh, Louisiana's Road Home Program. We're also, uh, Stephanie Grace is also here. Jeff, do you want to talk about that, that part of the data and, and what your big takeaways are? after doing this big project? Yeah, uh, you know, just to, to add on to what David was just saying, I mean, when you look at this data, the uh, the vast, vast majority of people, both, both in New Orleans and statewide, uh, the issue was not specifically that they didn't have any insurance at all. The issue was 
you know, you saw that there are um, basically the most of the, the people in this data had some sort of insurance, but it was covering a fraction of the cost of rebuilding. So it's less of that kind of uh, moral hazard issue of are you going to pay for, for people who, who didn't do anything and more are you going to uh, come in and give people the resources that they actually need uh, to rebuild? And remember, we're talking about, about um, and David probably knows this number off the top of his head, but it's more than 40,000 road home grants in, uh, in New Orleans itself. And that's 40,000 people that would not have had the money that they needed to even start the rebuilding process uh, without a program like this. So right. I, I think, um, you know, and, and very similarly to David, one of the things that, that I found most shocking about this, because all of us, of course, have heard about uh, claims of uh, uh, discrimination and disparities within the Road Home program, um, really was that, um, that even after the fixes they, they attempted to put in place or they put in place it in an attempt to, to fix those disparities, there was still such a wide gap uh, between rich and poor and between uh, white and non-white areas. Um, and, and really also the, the dramatic effect that they, this pre-storm value formula had. Um, and one of the interesting elements of that is in addition to poor areas in New Orleans, you saw a very similar problem in St. Bernard Parish, which is mostly white. Uh, it's uh, much more homogenous in terms of income than New Orleans was. Uh, people are, you know, in, in much more uh, uh, closer in income between the bottom and the top in, in St. Bernard. But what you had in St. Bernard was uh, lower property values. And that was something that attracted people to St. Bernard at one point. Uh, but then really came back to bite them at, with, with the Road Home program. And St. Bernard had some of the worst rates in terms of coverage of uh, any area, certainly in the metro area and, and across the state, um, just because they were limited by that pre-storm value. And it, it's pretty remarkable when you look at different neighborhoods, different areas of the city, and exactly the areas that you would guess uh, had uh, high property values, those property values tended to all be more than the cost of damage. So they were they had a higher amount that they could get from the road home program initially. Uh, poorer areas, all of the damage was higher than the the damage, which would be the cost to replace the home, was higher than what the home was actually worth on the market. So um, it's uh, it, it's something that certainly I think. Give, should should uh, give a lot of um, uh, evidence and a lot of uh, uh, validation to people who have been complaining about these issues for 16 years, and um, hopefully can can provide some uh, some new evidence to uh, for those looking at how to uh, structure rebuilding programs going forward. And and obviously has had just a tremendous impact on the New Orleans of today. And, and as your piece mm -hmm. looks at comparing 
uh, Lakeview versus the Seventh Ward and, and how this program has has impacted the, those those two neighborhoods. Yeah, and there's an ongoing effort, Patrick, uh, to try to see if there's ways to rectify this. I, we combined on a story earlier this year that looked at um, the 3,500 homeowners who were being sued by the state over their use of elevation grants that were part of the road home, and it forced the state to back off those judgments. And um, now what we heard from Walter Leger, who was a a key part of the Louisiana Recovery Authority when the program was being put together and first implemented, is that if we have these problems, let's address them because we were the guinea pigs. We were the ones who were, uh, you know, trying to devise these programs for unprecedented size of disasters that everybody else has followed since then and learned the lessons from. And it's unfair if we have to suffer the consequences of that and uh, and not get any any additional benefit that that everybody else is avoiding uh, these pitfalls. So if we can clearly establish how much as uh, people have been shortchanged, then we should try to rectify that even all these years later. All right. And time for one more question, Stephanie. So as as David said, we were the guinea pigs. This is the first and biggest program to this um, effect, but there have been so many disasters since. What does the federal government do now? Have Have they learned from this? Well, they say that they have, and they've followed that up by not allowing compensation programs. The irony of this is that the very thing that they wanted to avoid from the get-go uh, is the thing that they forced the state of Louisiana to do in 2007, March 2007, when the federal government said you have to just pay these uh, grants in lump sum payments ahead of time instead of working through banks to pay the money out in installments as the work gets done. Now that's all they do. That's all they'll allow states to do. So they've learned the lesson, and yet they won't rectify the problem that they created. Well, you, we're going to have to wrap it up there, but uh, everyone should read this series. It really is uh, the remarkable journalism uh, from the data to the stories. Um, and you can read the series by going to WWL-TV, the Times-Picayune, the Advocate, ProPublica. It's all on their websites. We'll also have links uh, in our show episode as well. And we want to thank uh, Jeff Adelson and David Hammer and Stephanie Grace uh, uh, for being here today. Thanks for having us, Patrick. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much, and this is Louisiana Considered. And I'm Patrick Madden. This is Louisiana Considered, the story of the 1955 murder of Emmett Till and the activism of his mother, Mamie Till Mobley, has gained renewed interest thanks to a recent TV miniseries and Hollywood film. There's a new traveling exhibit that's on display in Birmingham. Here's that story from the Gulf States newsroom's Taylor Washington. The Birmingham Civil Rights Institute opened an exhibit centered on Emmett Till last month. When he was 14, Till was on a trip to visit family in Mississippi, and he was brutally lynched by two white men. The archival photos and videos affected a lot of people. His screams were heard far out into the dark Mississippi night. 
including local activist, Charette Lady Freedom Spicer, who cried as she talked about it. Even though it's something that is hard to see, it's also hard to live and be black. And so it's really even an encouragement to just keep fighting for justice and to keep telling the truths about what happens to us. Till's story has been told before. There are details that are pretty widely known, like the fact that his mother, Mamie Till Mobley, had to fight to make sure people knew what happened to her son, so she insisted on an open casket funeral. But the exhibit dives deeper into what happened after he died. Mamie Till Mobley didn't just fade into the background. She became a civil rights activist. This year, Mamie Till Mobley and her son's story has seen renewed interest thanks to the recent miniseries, Women of the Movement, and the feature film, Till. What we like to say is that we're, we're so excited that Hollywood has picked up this story, but our, our, our job is really to allow people to go deeper. That's Patrick Weems. He's the executive director of the Emmett Till Interpretive Center, based in Sumner, Mississippi. For over a decade, the center has worked to keep Till's story alive. The center recently partnered with the Children's Museum of Indianapolis on a traveling exhibit. During its most recent stop in Birmingham, local high school students spoke to the crowd about issues still facing black communities today. They called it the talk. It's a conversation a lot of black parents have with their children about the dangers they face due to racism. It's a conversation Mamie Till Mobley had with her son before he left for Mississippi. Khalees Benson says she was honored to be a part of the program. There are so many stories that we have lost throughout the years because we weren't given the ability to preserve them and to tell them. In the exhibit, these stories are preserved. You can read letters Till wrote to his mother, listen to interviews she did, and look at magazines and newspapers from the time period, too. 13-year-old Zoe Smith said getting this deeper look was upsetting. See, I felt very angry because especially no person should go through that type of thing, and I just feel like if I ever went through that, I would be, like, upset, mad. I, I can't yeah. control this. In addition to the Till family story, each stop on the traveling exhibit will incorporate local civil rights history into the exhibit, too. In Birmingham, that includes the story of Benita Carter, a 20-year-old woman who was murdered by a Birmingham police officer. There's also the story of Beulah Mae Donald, a Mobile woman who successfully sued the Ku Klux Klan after they lynched her son. Ruby Shuttlesworth Bester, daughter of famed Birmingham civil rights activist Fred Shuttlesworth, says the exhibit is an important educational tool. This is what children and teachers need to know. This is what happened. And then it says how you can keep it from happening. Emmett and Mamie Till Mobley, Let the World See, will be at the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute until January. It's headed to Jackson, Mississippi in the spring. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Taylor Washington. The Gulf States Newsroom is a collaboration among public media stations in Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. And I'm Patrick Madden, and that's going to wrap up Louisiana Considered on this Friday. We want to thank all of our guests on the show today. We had a great roundtable discussion about the new uh, investigative series from WWL-TV, The Times-Picayune, The Advocate, and ProPublica. And we heard from two reporters on that project, Jeff Adelson and David Hammer. And we also had uh, uh, Stephanie Grace, as we always do on Fridays here on Louisiana Considered. That's going to wrap up our show. You can always listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday from 
uh, at noon and 7.30 p.m. You can also find us on your favorite podcasting platforms. Just search Louisiana Considered, and you can follow us that way as well. And you can also go to our websites at www.no.org and wrkf.org, and you can stream episodes that way. want to thank uh, everyone who was on the show today, our, and our managing producer, Alana Schreiber, and our engineer today, Garrett Pittman. I'm Patrick Madden, and I hope everyone has a wonderful and safe weekend. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience. More at rouses.com with additional support from the Sazerac House.